Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, good morning, everybody. It's been a long time since we've podded, and I apologize for that um, a little bit. I apologize a little bit, at least. Um, it's incredibly early on Saturday morning. As you can hear, the uh, Docklands Light Railway has just started up. Just gone five o'clock in the morning, actually, and uh, it's making its way up into Canary Wharf and beyond, into the East End and uh, overhead. The first of the aeroplanes are starting to sort of wheel in and land uh, at Heathrow Airport. Another normal Saturday in this uh, slightly abnormal summer of 2023 is about to get underway, and I'm cycling through Brookmill Park in between Lewisham and Deptford on my way up into central London where I'm going to chain my bike up and uh, get on a very fast train which is a massive pleasure isn't it Um, which will terminate at Edinburgh and that will be the trigger or the starting pistol for 48 hours or thereabouts in Scotland again Uh, a second consecutive weekend up in Scotland but this one a little bit of Edinburgh a little bit of Glasgow, a little bit of literature, and hopefully a little bit of the women's road race. Um, I'm going to kind of audio diary podcast style report on uh, the next couple of days of my life. See where it takes us. Well, I've arrived at um, St. Uh, what do you call it, King's Cross, in plenty of time for my Edinburgh train. It's very early in the morning, though, and because I've got a little bit of time in hand, I've actually withdrawn from the immediate uh, environs of the of the railway station, and uh, I'm actually sitting in Argyle Square, which is just opposite opposite the station, because um, it's a usual Saturday morning, very early kind of situation outside King's Cross. It's a bit lively. It's a bit lively, it's quite a lot of broken glass around, smells of urine quite intensely, and um, there's one or two kind of interesting characters wandering around, so I thought I'd just withdraw. Anyway, I was feeling slightly self-conscious of just kind of talking to myself into a machine. Um, but I'm looking forward to going back to, up to Scotland. Of course, I was there last weekend. Uh, that was a whirlwind visit. Caught up with David. We didn't have time to podcast. I was going to hook up with Pete as well, who'd driven over from the Isle of Man with his kids in tow. I actually couldn't get a hotel in Glasgow, so he was staying in Edinburgh, and uh, came across to see the men's road race, which he absolutely loved, and so did the family, I think. Total fanboy sort of behaviour, especially when they caught a glimpse of Tadej Pogacar. Um, but by the time I'd finished work, he'd gone home, because I think just looking after the kids was uh, quite intense. Or he'd gone back to his hotel in Edinburgh, at least. David is still there, though. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was interesting. I had uh, got a fairly last minute call from the BBC, who'd figured out that their my friend and wonderful the wonderful BBC commentator Simon Brotherton 
couldn't possibly have done the workload that was expected of him at these Super Worlds, which would have involved the men's road race and then sort of four or five hours of track all in one day. Jet lagged because he's only just come back from Australia where he's been commentating on the Women's uh, World Cup, which, by the way, I'm massively enjoying. Um, so, so yeah, they called me and said, could, could I fill in to do the, the road race for the BBC? And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Working with two people I've worked with before, one... Uh, in Hayley Simmons, someone I've worked with just once, I think, in the past, but I think she's a first-class commentator um, with a real understanding of, uh, well, her specialised subject, which is time trialling, but just racing in general, and a really keen eye over both the men's and the women's peloton, and a really lovely, understated, clear delivery. It was great fun working with Hayley again, and um, and Boardman. <laughs> Can't get away from me. Um... So he's still doing the BBC work, but has obviously retired from doing the ITV Tour de France thing. So, yeah. He was stuck with me in the commentary for, well, what should have been about six hours. Turned out to be seven hours because of the 50-minute the protest. Um, which is always quite hard to commentate on, I have to say, because at the time it's quite hard to get information. You, t you kind of leap to conclusions about what you think it might be, and it was indeed climate emergency protesters. I didn't quite know what they'd done, um, but it did take a long time to clear. Um, but uh, to balance in your commentary, the I suppose the frustration of the race organisers and the and the, and the and the riders, and to some extent as well, maybe the viewers at home um, for the disruption, to balance that with the uh, there's such a there's such a sort of dangerous equivalence here because or, or fragile equivalence because they're su the two so such different competing demands but um the as the protesters would see it the catastrophic urgency of the message that they are trying to impart by all means possible well by all means by whatever means they they can justifiably have at their disposal and one of those they think is um to halt live sporting events not to stop them uh, forever but to halt them and to bring their protest to, to the to, to to the foremost f forefront of people's the viewers um, minds for that for that moment at least and um it was it was a tricky one to to balance anyway the race was brilliant i thought the circuit was great i didn't understand i mean really great i didn't really understand all the criticism that had been going around it was technical and it was ultimately kind of filtered down to the brute strength of the selection of epic riders who who made that final you know quintet including Alberto Bettiol who was off the front for such a long time um I thought it was great I mean what more do you want of a circuit than to filter out the best in the world and ultimately that percolated them <laughs> to the to the to the very top and uh, in Mathieu van der Poel a deserved champion I thought it was great and it was safe good fortune to be dry on the on the for the men but um no I thought it was good and then the next day I had an event in the evening organised by Pedal Power, which was fabulous. Pippa York was there, a bunch of other people who I haven't seen for a long time. Packed out it was, and if you're in Scotland and Pedal Power ever organise another event, I thoroughly recommend you get along uh, to whatever they've got in mind. And the next morning I went to the bus station um, and walked across, uh, on Monday morning, walked across Glasgow city centre for about half a mile a kind of crisscrossing all these the roots of the circuit and I could not believe how quiet it was because basically for 10 days the entire city centre of Glasgow has been shut down to road traffic it's quite extraordinary and to relatively little opposition as well it strikes me and I could 
see before my eyes, you know, Glaswegians who were just going about their ordinary business, probably had little or no interest in the actual road racing, enjoying the benefits, the kind of collateral benefits of these roads being closed. So I wonder what legacy that in itself, never mind the sport, might have for the city. So it's a whirlwind, as I say, it's a whirlwind sort of 36 hours, 48 hours in, in Glasgow last time. And uh, today, if my train gets me there on time, the first appointment I have got is with uh, the uh, Edinburgh International Book Festival, where I'm, I'm going to be talking about 1923 a little bit later. Anyway, I'm going to get on that wonderful East Coast mainline fairly soon and uh, all those familiar waypoints like York and Darlington, Newcastle-upon-Tyne and then eventually getting into Edinburgh Waverley just after, well just around about lunchtime hopefully. Hotel room that the uh, book festival people have booked have put me into very nice Charlotte Square Hotel, incredibly posh. Never normally stay in anywhere like this. <laughs> but like this, it's not a Tour de France hotel. It's a very nice hotel in Newtown. Leather armchairs, that kind of thing. And I've got about three quarters of an hour in which I can have a good shower and a shave, and then get over to the author's yurt because I remember this. You know, I've been to Edinburgh down the years, lots and lots and lots, partly because my grandparents and then my mum and dad used to live near here. So all throughout my childhood, I used to come occasionally. I had some dim and distant recollections to see the tattoo, the Edinburgh tattoo. Why is it called a tattoo? I've got no idea. Um, but uh, yeah, then throughout my kind of adult life, starting when I was a semi-adult at university, I actually came up here with a, with a Cambridge University th- theatrical <laughs> production of sorts and spent a month here at the fringe playing to very small audiences in a cast of a variety of different plays actually three different plays and one of the cast members was um, Mel Giedrich um, at the time who was in in all three of the plays that we did Mel Um, and one of the plays was written by it was the first play I think ever performed and written by Jez Butterworth who went on to write Mojo and Jerusalem and um, yeah one of the most successful playwrights in the um, in the country, isn't he? Internationally, um, obviously, my acting career didn't go very far. Although I did, I took my one-man show, a kind of cut-down version of it, to the Edinburgh Fringe a couple of years ago, actually, three or four years ago, pre-COVID. Anyway, it's kind of a bit weird because my show is normally, you know, best part of two hours long with an interval, um, but I had to sort of chop it down. I'm not sure it worked very well. But anyway, if you came to see that, thank you very much. Um, and I have actually been to the book festival once before, about eight years ago. I, I I did a talk at the Edinburgh 
book festival. I really enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to um, getting down there and hanging out with whichever authors. Greta Thunberg's not going to be there. She's decided that one of the sponsors of the of the um, uh, book festival is a company she doesn't want to support because they've invested too much in fossil fuels. And I think she might be right. I don't. I haven't. To my shame, I haven't had time to look up who they are and what they might have done. And I'm here now. But um, that aside, I'm looking forward to meeting um, Emily Chapel, who is going to be interviewing me. Emily, if you don't know, is, um, well, she's written two absolutely fantastic books. Um, and she's uh, one about being a cycle courier, What Goes Around, I think it's called, and the other one about her experiences in the endurance, uh, ultra endurance cyclist called Where There's a Will. And she won the transcontinental race from Belgium to Turkey back in 2016. So she's an amazing person, Emily. And um, I've read, I haven't read her book about ultra endurance because I'm, I'm sure it's brilliant, but I'm less interested in that. But I have read um, What Goes Around. Years ago, I read it. I was sent a copy of it and read it. Her book about being a cycle courier. And a lot of how she writes, I can totally identify with. And a lot of her experience of riding around London, even though she was a professional, um, I can totally identify with. So I was gripped by that book and I recommend it. And it'd be really nice, really nice to have um, Emily interview me, talk about um, 1923. So um, I've got one eye on what's going on in Glasgow, one eye on what's going on in Brisbane, where the Lionesses, last time I saw they were 1-0 at half time against Columbia. Um, and it is the, I think it's the under 23 men's road race, which has got underway a couple of hours ago in Glasgow. So I'm going to keep an eye on what's going on there, as well as old Pidders in the um, mountain bike. Oh, by the way, many congratulations to Sam Gaze, who uh, you will know is a friend of the podcast. Sam, if you're listening, um, you are a world champion um, just the other day and uh, thoroughly deserved as well. So that's two consecutive summers that you've raced in Britain and uh, in the Commonwealth Games last year and now the World Championships up in Glasgow and you come away with a gold medal. Fantastic. Really pleased for you. Many congratulations and uh, not a surprise to anyone who is, is steeped in mountain biking like I am and understands it as well as I do. Um, yeah, good stuff. All right, um, we shall see how the rest of the day goes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Okay, I'm in the, uh, I've arrived at the festival, I'm in a yurt, it's been periodically raining and now the sun is coming out and it's actually baking, baking on the kind of outer skin of the yurt, which makes it slightly sauna-like, but it's um, lovely backstage here at the Edinburgh Book Festival. And Emily Chappell, who's going to be talking to me shortly, in around about half an hour actually, so we'll have to make this quite rapid, won't we, um, is, is here. And Emily, you reminded me that we met down at Hernhill Velodrome a couple of years ago, when do you think it was? About 2020 well, or something like that? Pre-pandemic. No. Pre-pandemic. 
Yeah, so 2019, I remember remember the year now. Right, 2019, definitely, yes. And I think then I thrust the camera in your face. So this is, you know, retaliation. (laughs) Yes. Emily, you and I went to the same university. Which college, Cambridge University, which one did you go to? I was at Trinity. Very good, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I didn't know when I was choosing, I just thought it sounded good, so... It was it was an all right college though. Well, uh, what is it? I mean, it's iconic, isn't it? Trinity for those Prince Charles, King Charles. He went there, didn't he? He did, yeah. Uh, Isaac Newton, Bertrand Russell. Bigger, bigger figure, figures even than King Charles <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and of course, in Chariots of Fire, it's the, around the Great Court that um, Anthony Andrews runs, doesn't he? And I think that maybe. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Famously, yeah. I've not seen the film, but yes, famously. Yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy your time there? Uh, it was a very mixed bag. I absolutely loved it. Best time of my life, and also had a terrible time and had to recover a lot when I came out. It's a very interesting place, um, I, yeah, but I think it made me what I am in many ways. That's Cambridge for you, isn't it? <laughs> Just about everyone who's honest has yeah. a really, really excellent, really terrible time at Cambridge. Um, and did, you went, you wanted to go into academia originally, is that right? And take your, take your academic studies further? Yes, well, I always wanted to write books and I had quite a narrow view of life at that point because I just hadn't lived very much. So I was very clever in school, very good at academics. Then I got to Cambridge and all the best people there were the people who were teaching me. So I thought, oh, well, I want to be like you. I'll become an academic. They write books. This is it. And ultimately that didn't work out for me. Um, I didn't get funding for my PhD when I applied for it. Was going to apply again. And then a global recession hit. Um, so I couldn't find any decent job. So I I had to become a bike messenger. And then the bizarre story is that is how I became a writer because all of a sudden I had something to say and I was out in the world and my body was working more, so my brain was working more. I started writing blogs and very quickly that turned into a book. And I find it really interesting because I thought I had taken a turn off the path I was supposed to be on. And actually I ended up exactly where I wanted to be. It's very personal, your book, um, uh, uh, what goes around. I just pause and remember what the title was again, um, because you, as we said before, your, your books have two quite similar titles. It's a very personal book, and it, I've suddenly remembered the, the book that first got me into cycling literature at all, and that was Matt Seaton's book, The Escape Artist. Oh, yes. Which you've yeah. Read, which is incredibly, I mean, it's deeply moving at times, isn't it, mm. Matt Seaton's account of his obsession with cycling. He, wasn't a, he was a racer rather than a courier, but... In a way, it was a bit of a London story at a kind of similar time as well. And um, I recommended it already on this podcast, but for six years you were a cycling courier as well. And and this book just documents that time in, in infinite detail as well, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, I could have gone into a lot more detail. I'm sure you know from having written books, you end up with a tenth of what you actually wanted to put in there because so much has happened. There are whole characters, whole plot strands that didn't make it in or did and then got cut out. I'm actually, I'm planning to republish one or two of the, the deleted chapters on my newsletter because I Brilliant. Think, yeah, yeah, well, well, you know, yeah. people have expressed interest yeah. um, and I worked for months on some of those. But yeah, there's, there's so much you want to put in, but you can't, so. Yeah. Yeah. And was it, so was it being a cycle courier that got you fit in the first place and then got you into, you know, part, part two of your career, which is this amazing kind of endurance athlete, the winner of the 2016 Transcontinental, which, where did it, fi- it finished in Turkey, didn't it? I can't remember where it started. It started in Herodsbergen in Belgium. So we went up the moor. Herodsbergen, yeah. Yes, yes. I've been up there loads of times now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we started there by torchlight. And then finished um, by Gallipoli, basically. That's amazing. 
both of which weirdly feature in tiny details in, in my book, 1923. They do, Yeah, they? Battling Sea serves at Gallipoli mm. and um, Heriadsberg, and it's just one of those places I pass through on my way through Belgium. But um, that, and, and so that, you, you, won, you won the 2016 edition, which is crazy. And then I remember sort of seeing an interview with you where you kind of wondered, what do I do next? Because that, it's kind of, you almost peaked out in terms of what you can achieve as an endurance racer. I'm still wondering, Ned. It's a really interesting position because for years of my life, the first part of my adulthood, I was always just looking for a bigger challenge than the last one. And also, I think, just trying to prove myself. And then I think I got to a stage where there were a few bigger challenges, but I didn't really fancy them. And also, I think I've proved myself. So you then, <laughs> you then need to find some more motivation. And that is still, that is still coming together. Um, because also, I think, in the second phase of your life, it's going to be a less obvious thing. You know, you're no longer just climbing up to prove yourself. To, you know, now it can get more complex, but I don't know what that is yet. What do you mean by complex? I was thinking maybe a little bit more laid back, a little bit more kind of like take my time over this maybe. And uh, I, don't, I don't know, have you still got that kind of racing gene in you, like getting there faster than anyone else, doing this distance as fast as possible? Does that, that still really matter to you? I don't think I was ever really about covering the distance as fast as I could. That, that was a, a byproduct, really. I think what I really... Sort of one by mistake. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously I also really wanted to yeah, win. Of course for sure. I do. Um, but really always the most interesting thing for me is the stories that happen along the way and is finding something new and I think once you've got to know the world a bit better it feels a lot harder to find something new like I really wish I could stumble across an ancient reel of film from the early 1920s that no one had seen before and make a whole book out of it but I keep looking around and as yet nothing like that has has come up yeah they're pretty rare they're pretty rare things I think unfortunately otherwise um We'd all be doing it, wouldn't we? But um, yeah. So, have you? Do, is your writing career going to continue after after those two books? Where there's a will, being the second one. Yes, but I think it's going to be different sorts of books. Um, I know you can have quite a good career out of going and having an adventure and writing a book about it and repeat. And there's a lot of people doing that who are doing it really well, and I love their books. But I don't really want to do it that way. I think the next thing I write is going to have to be different. And that in itself is a really enjoyable challenge because part of me thinks I I don't know if I could write a book that was about Mm. something other than my own adventures and experiences Mm. because what sort of authority am I on anything else? Mm. But I think therein lies the challenge and it'll be a more, like I said, a more complex challenge than just can you get to that place faster? Yeah, yeah. And in the meantime, are you a fan of road racing and the kind of stuff that keeps me occupied most of the year round, you know, following the, the big bike races around the world? Is that a side of the sport that, that interests you? Very, very much, yes. So um, I don't know if you, you're aware, but every year I ride the route of the Tour de France one week beforehand. With... I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Well, so it, it's an organisation called Le Loop, and it's oh, a yeah, great big charity yeah. thing. Mm. We get just over 50 riders, plus many more come in to do smaller chunks. They do the whole route, every stage, full length, one week before the professionals are there. Which means, of course, by the time we get to Paris, I know the route inside out. I'm very interested to see who will attack on a particular corner. Mm. And, you know, you start predicting, well, here's who I think might win on Pique Bidea. We were all wrong, by the way. <laughs> um, and then after that, I, I binge on the ITV highlights. So I normally know who's won most of the stages, but then I get to go back and watch in great detail and see all the roads that I rode and see if any of my theories were correct. They're normally not. And uh, 
yeah, I am less so the rest of the year. So, for example, I'm normally travelling during the Giro, so I tend not to follow that very much. But the Tour itself, um, I'm as obsessed as a civilian can be, really. It was a good race this year, wasn't it? Oh, God, it was fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And started with the Pico Pideo. I had to rewind. I thought, where was that? Oh, yeah, it was stage one, wasn't it? Mm. It was crazy the way it got underway. Um, how was the Col de la Loz for you? Well, we had an electrical storm. Wow. Because of course... Because it's not hard enough, really, the Col de la Loz, is it? So chucking in an electrical storm as well. Yeah, just spiced it up a little bit. And of course, we take a lot longer. Uh, In the Alps, we'll take three times as long. Of course. So it was, at that stage, potentially going to be getting dark. This storm was coming in, and I was having to really keep an eye on, you know, are the riders going to be okay? Are they still... Do they have enough energy? Do they have lights? Have they eaten and drunk well? And so getting everyone over the Col de la Loz was... um, it felt like a bigger triumph than than winning a race. Everybody got in safely to Courchevel and they were all happy and no one came to grief. And yes, yeah. it's hellishly steep, isn't it? Amazing. And is this a fundraising thing, is it? Or, or Yes, yeah. So we raise money for something called the William Waits Memorial Trust, which helps disadvantaged young people, mostly in the UK. So people, if they're listening to this, want to chip in a few quid, they can just find it online, can they? William Waits or whatever, and donate. Yeah, or if you uh, look for Le Loop, ridelaloop.org. Um, that's where you find Get it. Involved. Excellent. All right, it's pretty amazing, isn't it, that we've got this going on here and we're about to go on stage and talk about the Tour de France and just up the road in Glasgow, we've got the World Championships going on as well. Have you managed to nip across to sort of have a look or have you been so tied up with everything that's going on here? Although the Book Festival's only just started, hasn't it? So I don't know. Yeah, well, I haven't made it to the Worlds, no, because I'm also very sensibly moving house this month as right. well. So. <laughs> <laughs> so life has been a bit busy since I got back from the Tour. Um, but I've been watching from afar. Have you been over there? I was up. I was commentating for the BBC on the men's race, uh, just deputising because they were so there's so much going on because it's the multidisciplinary that Simon Brotherton, who's their usual commentator, is just completely overloaded with stuff. So they called in the reserves mm-hmm. from ITV. So I I commentated on the men's elite road race last weekend, and actually tomorrow I think I'm going to go depending on the weather because it could be a bit. I think I'm going to go across to watch the women's road race on that a mad Glasgow circuit mm-hmm. um, and then see who wins that. Basically, what's, what's your prediction? Well, it's hard to see beyond... I love making predictions because invariably absolute bollocks. Um, it's hard to see beyond Lottie Kopecky, um, who is just kind of tailor-made for that course, I think. Mm. And everyone seems to agree. Um, but, but, but again, it's one of those situations where because she is so clearly the favourites, just in terms of, I think, the kind of rider she is and the kind of course it is. She's Mathieu van der Poel, if you like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Everyone's going to have to try and upset the apple cart. So I hope and expect it's going to be a really dynamic race. And uh, yeah, um, there's yeah, there's a few other riders who could who could uh, who could do something pretty special. And I love the, I just love the circuit there. Mm. It's like nothing I've ever seen. And I love the fact that it's actually just brought Glasgow to a complete motorised standstill for ten days. I've never seen anything like that. It's shut. They've shut the city centre. <laughs> it's barricade. You can't drive a car around like a square mile of the city centre all around the historic heart of Glasgow it's absolutely incredible and do do they seem happy about this delighted really (laughs) (laughs) I don't know alright let's go and get prepared anyway and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival we're delighted to be here we're delighted you're here too my name is Emily Chappell so it gives me great pleasure to introduce Ned Bolting, who I'm sure all of you will know as the voice of the Tour de France 
in the UK. Uh, he's an award-winning sports journalist. He's one of the best-known cycling commentators and has been commentating on the Tour de France for over 20 years now? 20, 21 years, yeah. For quite a lot of time. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably one of the reasons that a lot of us have developed our own Tour de France obsession. It's where you realise how elusive the truth is and you know how just one slightly wrong fact can be grabbed and then magnified and then it kind of 100%. becomes the truth whether you wanted it to or not. Yeah. There's something that you say in the book, and I wanted to ask about this because you say at one point, um, you talk about the, the ice that formed over the world of recorded facts when the internet came into existence and almost as though it just kind of, it froze everything that was there before. Yet also, the internet has been massively helpful to you. There's a wonderful bit in the book where you discover a person and it's the first time you've ever heard of them. And within minutes, you've emailed them, they phoned you and you're having a beer at their house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that wouldn't have happened in 1923. So, uh, you know, in, in what ways did the way the world works today enable and also inhibit your... I, I think what I mean by that is, um, I think because we, we have this impression of a great breadth of information that the internet offers us, because it is, it's true on, on the one hand, but on the other hand, and it touches on what I was just saying about, about actual historical research sort of being frozen. So the stuff that we know forms this icy crust, yeah? And people seem content with that. So there's a, there's a, there's a very famous kind of... Um, story that is attached to the origins of the Tour de France that dates back to 1910, for example, where um, I think it's Eugene Christophe, I think, is uh, supposed to have gone over the Col d'Aubisque um, and railed at uh, Henri Desgranges, Assassin, vous êtes des assassins, you are assassins. Yeah? And a lot of people nodding, you'll have heard that story. Um, and it's gone down in, in Tour de France folklore. I don't think it really happened. <laughs> That's what I mean about the ice forming. So, so because that story has its own Wikipedia page almost, you know, then it gets replicated in your blog, my blog, that blog, this story, this book, you know, and people don't actually stop and ever go, did it happen? And look a bit further, you know, behind the story. And so what the pandemic enabled me to do was actually smash through the ice and kind of like swim around in the kilometers of water that are kind of churning away beneath this kind of, this, this freezing thing that the internet has done in terms of research. And that's where it came to life for me, you know. I, I discovered things that I won't go, I don't want to spoil too much, but I, I discovered things about the literal origins of the Tour de France, which I didn't know. You know, there was a Lotto newspaper, which everyone knows was the newspaper that started the Tour de France, did it because of a bitter rivalry that had its roots in the Dreyfus affair. You know, and quite clearly, I mean, you can actually trace the birth of the Tour de France to the Dreyfus affair in two very easy steps. You know, and, and, and the time and the space that I was able to devote to this book gave me the opportunity to actually tease out some of the truth here, or what I think to be the truth. But I'm no historian, you know. Well, I mean, many truths are available, and many truths the, are available. there may be yet more to Post come. This is, yeah. this is something I look forward to over subsequent years, as I'm sure you're going to remain quite interested in the Tour de France, I am sure that one day you're going to appear on the highlights and say, 
Here's an interlude for you. I've just found something new about 1923. <laughs> I look forward to it. Maybe 15 years' time, who knows? I think David Miller will kick me hard in the shins if I... <laughs> I don't want to hear another thing about 1923. <laughs> we all do. Um, Okay, we have another question at the back there. Hi, Ned. Hello. Um, I've read the book and it was absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Um, I would describe it as never strays far from 1923. So they are <laughs> free plug for the podcast and the website. Um, did you ever get your medal from the Tour de France this year? You, you, you made a big thing about it, but there was never any actual acknowledgement whether you got the medal or not. Yeah, I, I did in the end. It was the most underwhelming and disappointing experience of my life. That, that for a start, it's not a medal. It's the cheapest bit of perspex trophy that the Tour de France could find. They just about got around to engraving my name on it. Um, and I wasn't given it by Christian Prudhomme, which I was determined to... to but rather, I was given it by my own producer, who... <laughs> who'd been handed it at the last minute by ASO in the darkness after stage 21 and the race had actually finished. They just completely forgot. So, um, so yeah, I'm deeply wounded. <laughs> on that note, I wish we could carry on for longer. So do I. I. It's we been great fun. Pub, but I think Ned is needed elsewhere and someone else needs this room, so we're going to have to stop. Ned, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you. <laughs> very excited uh, the other day when uh, there was a knock on my door and a parcel arrived from America of all places that I had to sign for. had no idea what it was going to be, ripped it open and our friends at AG1 had uh, gifted me a very nice sweatshirt, um, a very cool little, um, what do you call them, it's like cappuccino stirrer thing, electric thing, whizzer that mixes the AG1 and a, a wonderful new bottle with a reusable, I think it's glass, um, straw. So uh, many, many thanks to everybody at AG1. Also, I've got a family member who's um, just about to have an operation and will uh, go in for a fair, fairly lengthy recovery. So I have recommended AG1 to them because it's been part of my life now for six months or more. It basically replaces your multivitamin, it's probiotic, and it's all in one simple daily mornings, for me, drinkable habit, uh, delivering everything that your body needs. Um, whole body health, basically, and I have uh, been feeling much better ever since I've been taking it. Um, if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash neverstraysfar. That's drinkag1.com slash never strays far. Check it out. Back at uh, Waverley Station now. Only just made it actually, just waiting for the doors to open on the Aberdeen train. I'm heading up to St Andrews now. Um, what an event that was. Emily's a brilliant host. And a lovely, big, warm audience, and then book signings and meeting everyone. Lots of people have already read the book and stuff and wanted to talk about it. Buy another copy for 
whoever, their mates or their relatives and stuff. So I'm really touched. It's the response to this book has been slightly overwhelming, and um, yeah, pushing my way through festival goers and passing the Royal Mile. There was some police holding everyone back. I think some dignitaries. Uh, heading towards the castle for the Edinburgh tattoo, which I think happens this evening. Um, and uh, so, temporarily leaving Edinburgh behind me, off to St Andrews, which is a place I've never been to before for uh, stop two on this Saturday sojourn uh, in Scotland. tonight to introduce us to his new book, 1923, The Mystery of Lot 212 and the Tour de France Obsession. Please join me in welcoming Ned tonight, the man behind the voice of the tour. That was another fun, um, yeah, toppings of, of St Andrews. Lovely bookshop, absolutely beautiful bookshop. And um, packed out, it was fun. It was an extraordinary layout. There was a long corridor and everyone was like in two abreast all the way down the corridor. And then um, on either side, like laid out like a crucifix, there were little spurs. And I stood at the kind of like fulcrum of it all. And um, anyways, thoroughly entertaining, some lovely folks and some really nice questions. And my thanks to... Uh, to Julia, or Julia, Julia, who came to this country from Frankfurt 25 years ago and has raised a family here um, for an excellent line of questioning. She was the lady whose voice you heard there at the beginning. So that's that. It's now half past nine. I'm standing in Lucas uh, Railway Station, which is a tiny little, tiny little place just, uh, just near St Andrews. I'm waiting for a train that's delayed to take me back to Edinburgh and eventually to a very comfortable and uh, very, very uh, welcoming bed in the Charlotte Square Hotel. Um, and tomorrow, I don't really know what I'm going to do, but we'll, we'll find something interesting to do. It's a bright, breezy morning in Edinburgh. Nice blue skies, white clouds, uh, lovely temperature. And um, I'm going to head over to Glasgow in a couple of hours, but I wasn't going to leave Edinburgh without having a bit of a fringe experience. So I downloaded the app. This is what you've got to do if you come to the fringe. Download the fringe app. And then you just press on the button. You press nearby me and starting now and, um, and see, what, see, what, see what pops up. So I've um, just bought a ticket to a show about which I know absolutely nothing um it's called it's stand-up comedian a stand-up comedian from romania called mihai tartara and um it is the show's called 1998 a walking disaster anxiety uh what's what's the full title anxiety wait a minute get my receipt here uh, 1998 a walking disaster anxiety absurdity air fryer <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go along at the Laughing Horse venue in the City Cafe in Blair Street, just off the Royal Mile. And um, I'll see how that goes. And then I'm going to um, jump on a train and head over to Glasgow for the Women's Road Race. Brilliant. All right. Hello. 
right, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for your comedian of the evening, uh, uh, morning, I mean morning. Give it up for me, hi Tartara. kid you know I, I come from a very small town in Romania a very little town uh, where we have only two industries nuclear energy and prostitution but uh, you know the prostitutes travel around the world or at least that's how I end up here <laughs> you thought it's gonna be a misogynist joke no 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 it's all about me and uh, I grew up in this uh, neighborhood called Colombia, uh, which had a lot of similarities with the South American country. We also had exotic animals because we lived next to the nuclear plant. <laughs> we had the biggest rats you could see, you know. It's not uncommon to see on the street Master Splinter with the Ninja Turtles. Uh, there were rats everywhere. Rats on the streets, rats on the cars, rats driving the cars. <laughs> That's why whenever uh, I go I'm outside, I'm glad I had epilepsy because uh, you know what they say, what doesn't kill you makes you funnier. Because <laughs> it would be quite hard to be funny when you are dead. <laughs> I don't think the best comedians could pull that off. Not even Stuart Lee will be funny then. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, my father texted me that he loves me. Uh, yeah, and I texted him back. You just ruined my show. <laughs> Usually there's a bigger laugh here, but thank you very much. <laughs> well, I enjoyed that. That was an amazing venue. It was actually a karaoke. Um, it was in a cellar of this cafe, and it was a karaoke studio built for like maximum eight people. And I counted them. There were 25 people in there, or 24, I think. No, 25, including the stand-up comedian, including me. I. Anyway, that's it. Um, back in the train, back at Waverley Station, and heading to Glasgow, where um, <coughs> the women's race will be reaching in around about three quarters of an hour, something like that. Um, having started. 50 minutes ago, so I'll be in Glasgow fairly soon. Jill, I am, I'm never one to leave Scotland, for a start. I'm having the best time, so I've just done, I did a, I was over in Edinburgh last night, I did the Edinburgh Book Festival and then uh, and a book event over in St Andrews. Oh, I should explain, I'm with Jill Douglas. I can't just, in terms of the podcast, I've just got rocked up, slammed into record. I've arrived in Glasgow. And I'm with the BBC's Jill Douglas, which is amazing. BBC and I'm just slash ITV. Yes, of course. With your snooker hat on. You basically do everything in sport. Everything in sports, Jill Douglas. Um, <laughs> and, um, and this morning, I went and I've literally an hour and a half ago, I was watching a Romanian stand-up comedian at the Fringe. And I've just jumped on a train over here into the middle of a bloody bike race. I literally stepped out of Glasgow Queen Street at precisely the moment where I think they've just arrived onto the circuit for the first lap, right? It's fantastic. I mean, look at the crowds as well. Everybody's loving it. The sun's shining. Always, it's always sunny in Scotland, Ned. You know this. It's properly roasting. Um, so what have I missed? What's been going on in the race? Well, like... I have to put my hands up here, Ned, and say <laughs> I flew in from St Etienne, 
this morning. What so were you doing in Sudetia? While you were listening to a Romanian comedian, I was probably somewhere between Lyon, Heathrow <laughs> and Glasgow. I was in uh, St Etienne in the fa- fabulous stadium there, the Cauldron, for France-Scotland Rugby World Cup warm-up match because I'm going to be really busy in the next couple of months with ITV doing the Rugby World Cup. So I was doing a warm-up match there, but I wanted to get back for the women's race and I'll be in the mix zone shortly picking up the winners and hearing how everybody did and, and finding out exactly what happened in the race. So at the minute, it looks like the really strong contenders are out front of the race and there's been a, one or two spills. I've seen one or two riders go down, but it looks it's shaping up to be a cracking race. So when they rattled past here, was that the first time? Was that the first time they went over the finish? You probably don't know, do you? Because you, you've just arrived as well. I think, what did they do, six laps? Six laps, okay. yeah, yeah. The men did ten, didn't they? The men did Which ten. Maybe a bit too many. I don't know. And, I mean, as you saw on the on the men's race, this circuit is very, very technical. We're fortunate it's not raining, but you know, it's a complete unique edition of the World Championship. We've seen, I mean, the, mainly the World Championships end in these big sort of circuit um, circuits in a city or or a city centre, but not usually as technical as this. So it adds a little new dimension. But as we saw in the men's race, the best riders made it to the end and contested the medals. I think that's what we'll see here today. Yeah, I did notice that Anna Henderson was with, I think a Canadian rider or something, just a little bit off the front, and then there were a group of like half a dozen with Lizzie in in it. So I didn't, and I think Lottie Kapecki. So Roiser was at the road with uh, Roiser. Yeah, she so, was at the. It wasn't a Canadian kid at all. It was a Swiss kid. But, but of course, you know, given that she didn't really have a great day on the bike in the time trial, she seems to have had her, got her legs back on. So she was there. Lottie Kapecki is there. Um, I think the idea might have been to put Anna up in the brake and 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 see where. Lizzie can find herself but Lizzie looks really strong I talked to her in the week before this and she is in the great place and she's in such a strong place I've just swapped messages with Phil Dignan who's back at home with a little one with Shay watching on and he was saying uh, um, he said that Lizzie was super nervous this morning which he always identifies as a really good sign apparently like when she's identified a target that she thinks is realistic she gets really nervous so it's interesting yeah when I spoke to her she was saying uh, you know given that she's back on the bike having had lovely Shay and she was saying um, she looked at the tour tour, uh, tour de France Femme and was sort of looking around and saying is that all you've got you know she felt super strong and she's riding with a smile on her face you know she it, it's freed Lizzie I think she's she's riding with a freedom so it'll be interesting to see how she gets on to there's some really strong riders in there a lot of Quebec is going to be the one to beat I think uh, and of course five out of the last six world championships won by uh, the wonderful Dutch team so I suspect they'll be in the mix well, that big car with the big watch on, the big Tissot timing watch, has just come past, so I think they can't be too far away, which is pretty cool. So hopefully, if you can hang around for a minute or two, you will see them come past. But in the meantime, your home worlds, effectively, Jill, what have you made of the whole super worlds thing? And have you been working on the track and everything? You've done bits and pieces of all of it? Yeah, I did the uh, BMX freestyle, Ned. That yeah. was a... You know, it was- the stoke was high. It's the right demographic for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was right down there. Uh, it was great. You know, I, I dropped into the BMX freestyle. Really enjoyed it. And and Kieran Riley was an absolute superstar. Fant- I really, you know, I genuinely found it really entertaining. And, and the you know crowds were great. I've been doing time trials. I've been doing all sorts. I've been trying to bookend it with rugby matches as well. So it's been a bit of a blend. But wow. what I what I've found is you know what a what a great place to come people are so welcoming here we saw it in the european championships which was another combined sports event recently we saw it in the commonwealth games they do it well here you know people the volunteers love it people they're very welcoming folk in scotland 
Uh, and of course, you've got the festival happening in Edinburgh. Madness! There's just it's so madness. much going on, and uh, like I'm so proud to be Scottish. Uh, then I'll disappear off back down to England next week. But <laughs> I am really, I am really enjoying it, and I've, I, I think it's, I like the idea that combined was. I think it's right in maybe every four years because what it allows is some of the lesser-known cycling events to share the stage with the big headline acts, and therefore it gives them that moment of attention and and and, they get, and speaking to the riders what they've loved is spending time with people who they don't see regularly from their fellow nations that whole community aspect exactly. that is actually quite a fundamentally important characteristic of the world championships isn't it people who don't know so the whole cycling world comes together and the family has been kind of extended and prolonged during this long stay in Glasgow. It's, it's quite different, isn't it? And, and also you've got, you know, real teenagers coming through at early BMX all the way up to the sort of elder states with a sport like Geraint, you know, and he, he's laughing about being involved with the, the kids coming in and joining the team. It's so special and, and uh, I think they've all really enjoyed it. And, well, listen, the, the bike race is about to come through and you'll hear just how much the crowd here in Glasgow enjoys seeing it. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it, is, it is indeed. Any particular highlights? Like, of, of like, did you enjoy? It? I mean, I was up here working for the BBC on the men's race, which I loved doing, by the way. And I thought that was spectacular. I thought the circuit delivered a great outcome as well. I loved the men's race because you saw, you know, look at the top five riders. You know, the best five in that race. That, you know, so yeah, can't argue that, with that. Really, that can tells you? me it's a proper world championships. You know, mm. and this is my. I'm probably about my. It's about 20 years since I did my first... Um, I was very young, Ned, when I went to my first World Championships. Probably had to bunk off school, except it probably... <laughs> you know, it was always in the autumn. And uh, what I love about it is, you know, the different circuits bring out different champions. You get different winners. It's not like the classics, or it's not like the tour where you get winners on specific types of course. He, the World Championships are so um, unique. Oh, my goodness, here they come. We better be quiet. Well, so that is... Well, what? That's the Swiss kid. Is that Marlon Royster? It looked like it was Royster off the front. She's got a bit of a gap. Like that's, I'm going to say that's a 10 second gap or something like that to a chase group. That's Kopecky. With Kopecky on the front and that's one. Anna and Henderson's Diagon in there. Diagonal is in the sort of. Two, yeah, so there's quite a peloton with Royster off the front. There's about 30 like a, riders. That looks like the elite group there. And that's all the hitters. Yeah. So the winner either comes from Royster or someone in that big group. missing in that group. So that's, that's going to be your, your medalists are in that group that have just gone through there. And as you'd imagine, there's quite a strong Dutch con contingent in there. Oh, Joe, I better let you get back to work, can I? I don't know, I'm going to be in there mix zone waiting to see who comes through with the, with the rainbow jersey. It's a real privilege. I'm really excited to be here. All right, brilliant. Nice to see you, Jill. Well, with about 60 kilometres to go in the uh, race, I left Jill. Uh, to go off and do her job for which she is um, paid and uh, I drifted off to do the job for which I'm not paid which is namely just watch the bike race and rabbit on for never straight far I actually thought because it's something I obviously didn't get to do when I was commentating on the men's race I thought I'll go and have a look at Montreux Street so I've made my way up to um, a, a little park outside the um, the city of Glasgow College city campus which is a brand new building and there's this lovely little park at the top of Montreux Street where they put up a big screen uh, where you can follow the action around the course as well. <coughs> it's a beautifully sunny afternoon. Uh, at least shabby it was, not Marlon Royster, off the front. And she built up a lead of one and a half minutes with about, uh, what was it, 40 kilometres to go or something? Um, at which point I fell asleep. <laughs> and when I woke up, uh, I realised that the, the Netherlands in particular had started to work. And last time they've just gone round uh, with two more laps to go, two and a bit more laps to go. Um, Elise Shabby's very nearly been caught by Annemiek van Fluten, who counter-attacked. And then seconds behind van Fluten, a selection with Cecilia Utrup 
uh, Marlon Royster, the other Swiss rider, uh, Lizzie Dignan, Lottie Kopecki, Demi Follering, and maybe one or two others. Um, so that's where the win is going to come from. And um, yeah, Phil Dignan will be looking on nervously with baby Shay back home uh, because Lizzie Dignan at the moment is right in this, but so so too are the Dutch and so too is Kopecki, who's tried actually on a couple of occasions already to get away to no avail. Two more laps to go. And um, I've fully woken up now. Absolutely brilliant place to watch a bike race. A fantastic atmosphere. And I'm loving every second of it. That's Lottie Kopecki uh, just going past me now with about four kilometres to go. She attacked about five kilometres to go. Uh, Cecilia Utrup has left her. Uh, Demi Follering and Lizzie Dignan are um, in the company of uh, Marlon Reusser and Schweinberger, caught out by that. So you've got Kopecki off the front. Following and Reusser have gone clear, actually, of Schweinberger and Dignan. Um, and it looks like Kopecki has got this now. She's waited, a couple of softening up attacks, and uh, the great Belgian is off, and surely she's going to win the gold from here. Here we go then, you can see that, you can hear the helicopters overhead, I'm at the top of Montreux Street, Lotte Kopecki has just crested the climb and appeared in front of me, she's sweeping left-handed now towards the one kilometre kite, looking back down the road, and only now does Cecilia Utra clear in second place come over the top of that climb, and it looks like Demi Follering has left the others and into the bronze medal position, just Marlena Royster now coming over the line in fourth place, um, but Kopecki, if she stays upright, has got the rainbow bands. Over the line now, Lottie Kopecki. It's a slight delay here on the big screen, but uh, the crowd at Montreux Street have waited a couple of minutes now to see Lottie Kopecki glance backwards, see an empty road behind her, ease up a little bit, and in a time of just over four hours, she is the 2023 road race champion of the world, and she has done it brilliantly. She smashes the... Oh, and just at that moment, our big screen does a bit of buffering. With both fists, though, she smashed the air in front of her. And now the hands go up in celebration. And Demi following just by the looks of it, out sprints uh, Cecilia Utrup uh, to the silver medal. Marlon Royster crosses the line in fourth place. And that was that. And Kopecki has done it. She's justified her favourite status. And my, my whirlwinds, 48 hours in Scotland, effectively, comes to a close in magnificent style. I've just loved every second of it. Thank you, Edinburgh. Thank you, Glasgow. Thank you, Scotland. I'm off on holiday next. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 